0: This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network.
1: Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I'm Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Terry Menard. Hi, Terry.
0: Hey, Joe. And, you know. I, I feel like Lynch has given us a bunch of zigzags and zags with his work. And this mm-hmm. is the first time that of these initial David Cronenberg ones that I feel like we're getting that kind of zag that I'm not used to with his work.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, folks, we're talking about 1981 scanners and. I'll confess this was a first time watch for me. I knew about the infamous head exploding sequence which I didn't realize happened quite so early in the film, but Oh my uh, god, I
0: made the same note, Joe. I was like 10 <laughs> minutes in. What? I thought this was like the the kind of climactic moment or one of the like, you know, maybe midpoint type moments. No, it's uh it's happening right in the right in
1: the outset. Yeah, I mean it's a good way to hook an audience, right? And obviously there's a reason it's gone down in history as like the most memorable part of this film because you see dick smith's gore effects like they're pretty freaking great right
0: oh it's fantastic and this i mean you know before this is my first watch as well and before watching this yes that is the only thing that i would know about this movie oh it's the movie with the infamous head
1: explosion mm-hmm.
0: that you see as a GIF used on social media now all the time all the time <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, I feel like I understand why more men might have gravitated to this or why certain sci-fi fans would really say like, oh, this is a memorable film. As someone who likes the weird, sexy parts of David Cronenberg's filmography, I did find that this one is a little conventional and it's a little... I don't want to say surface level or shallow, but it very much feels like like if I didn't know that this was a David Cronenberg film, I might have said, oh, it, it's just a generic sci-fi movie.
0: Uh, sometimes, Joe, I feel like we are sharing a brain because <laughs> I literally, as I was watching this, I was like, okay, this is, this is fun. There's, some really, there's a neat, really cool car chase. There's a cool yep. escalator chase.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: there's some explosions. There's some gore. There's some great great effects by by, uh, Dick Smith.
1: But, I mean... There's just nothing here, right? Like, there's (laughs) nothing to hang
0: our hats on. (laughs) No, I mean, I can can totally see. So we're getting into the 80s. This is 1981. And so we're starting to get more into the practical effects heavy type of decade. Where, Mm -hmm. like, it's like, what kind of gooey, gross, disgusting practical effect can we throw on the screen? Sure. And so I can see that this is sort of a turning point in terms of, like... Cronenberg has more money to play with. I'm I'm assuming with this because it looks more expensive than his earlier work, and there's some. Mm-hmm. Very in your face effects work that I'm sure cost a lot of money.
1: Yeah, this one has a three point five million dollar budget. It ends up making fourteen. So it's it's quite a success for him. But yeah, compared to like the hundreds of thousands of dollars or like the one million I think he spent on Rabbit, this is a step up. Absolutely. And so I can see as you were
0: saying that that uh this would kind of appeal to a certain subset of men, going to grindhouse theaters or going to I guess in the eighties this would start to be maybe played in the movie theaters as well. Well. So, like, mm-hmm. having, like, that aspect of it, I can absolutely see why this would grab the mind of some young teenager, maybe even younger, sneaking into an R-rated movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see that this would be that. But for someone like us, where we're going through his uh, filmography and seeing a lot of movies that use telepathy, mm-hmm. shadowy government organizations, I, I mean, this is it, – it's pretty – I don't want to say pedestrian but like right there's nothing here that would speak to the same kind
1: of things that he was exploring in his previous three movies right and one of the things that we should acknowledge is that this is a more troubled and I'm using that sort of <laughs> slightly like it it didn't have a huge issue but this was made quickly because Cronenberg was looking to seize on some tax breaks that were being offered like subsidies in terms of uh, government financial support to make the movie but he didn't have a completed script so infamously whenever you read about this movie there's talk about how he was writing scenes the day that they were being shot, right? It's not a lack of finesse. it just doesn't feel like the pitcher has a fulsome idea of what it wants to explore thematically or narratively. So there's a bunch of sequences that, yeah, they do connect, but you know things don't always make a ton of sense like it feels like we're sort of jumping in fits and starts between certain sequences characters aren't always important they sort of show up and they either get killed or they kind of disappear later on so this just has a a lack of polish to it that i had come to expect particularly following the brood which was such an intimate personal film but like very well fleshed out, like well paced, very smartly executed.
0: So as I was watching this without because I, I, I looked at I don't tend to look at the production stuff before I go into watching a movie if I don't mm-hmm. know about it. And sure. So I didn't really know any of the the history behind this until after I watched the movie. But yeah. as I was watching it, I was thinking these people aren't really characters. There's nothing here mm-hmm. to explore thematically behind what what's happening ironically inside their heads like there is they're just they're ciphers they're just they're there to be stock characters Mm -hmm. i don't know i i felt like there was a lack of nuance to any of these kinds of characters you have like the guy coming from nowhere that doesn't know anything about his history you have the sort of i mean at this point cronenbergian scientist that is Mm -hmm. you know masterminding everything and then you have revik who is this evil guy that wants to destroy everything and that's about as surface level as any of these character parts go. So instead there's a focus on plot. Well, what would be the next kind of plot thing that would drive the action forward? Let's throw in some car accidents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's That feels to me the only kind of surface level exploration of
1: anything nuanced in this movie to be perfectly honest right i think one of the other challenges that i have and and maybe this is me wearing my queerness on my sleeve but this is a very masculine film Mm. like there's one female character of note that would be jennifer o'neill's kim obrist but she's practically immaterial to the plot and she doesn't show up until well past the halfway point. So this is a movie about men and even though there are special effects as you as you laid out, you know, it's not like we're getting anything to connote when folks are using their telepathy or their ESP powers. So it's very much like people scrunching their faces and and <laughs> you know, looking at each other really Fixedly. and i think that uh, michael ironside does it excessively well like revik is the standout in this movie but that's also because <laughs> we have stephen lack who is a non-professional actor who is i'm gonna say it horribly miscast as the lead protagonist and it just it really tilts the film in favor of michael ironside and when he's not on screen the movie's not as the movie's just not great yeah when (laughs) when Stephen lack tries to emote deliver dialogue engage
0: with other actors do anything other than stand there (laughs) it's like (laughs) i was like oh my god this is this is so stilted this is yeah really painful to watch my first my first thought was like oh i can see that this this actor kind of resembles what I think of when I think of David Cronenberg, particularly like in the eyes back Mm -hmm. at that time frame. I was like, okay, I can see this almost as a stand-in for Cronenberg in in some way, but there's nothing there in his performance. It is so... It was yeah. so painful to listen to Joe in some parts. Yeah.
1: Um, it's interesting that you bring up the eyes because I I found a Den of Geek article that's kind of a retrospective on the film, and they suggest that there's a legend that Cronenberg allegedly cast Lack, who, you know, everyone knew is not a professional actor. He's actually an, an artist and a painter. And apparently Cronenberg cast him because he was really taken with the blueness of his eyes. Mm. And I do think he has a bit of a striking look like he's a memorable yeah. looking guy particularly those eyes but the problem is, is that this isn't enough to anchor a film and that's a problem when so much of the film centers on do you care about this man's journey from "Ooh, i'm saddled with these powers and they really fuck up my life because i can't control them to i'm quite possibly saving the world from scanners
0: <laughs> yeah i mean that's 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 a lot to drop on someone's shoulders. And I just, uh, as Mm -hmm. you're suggesting, I don't think he has the acting chops to really pull it off. No. And unfortunately, with the fact that we have, as you also mentioned, we have the kind of face scrunching in order to suggest that there's some kind of telepathic attack happening. Mm -hmm. It it can verge into camp uh, for Mm -hmm. me in some cases. A little silly at times. (laughs) Especially the, the titular head explosion where he is like, I he I I felt so bad for him as an actor because I'm like, how are you supposed to convey what is happening inside your head? And he does it by kind of almost seizing on the the stand and trying to like put his arms out in different directions. It's just it mm-hmm. it's not as effective as I think it
1: wants to be. There's some weird inconsistencies, like not just in the way that the film is overall constructed, like the the change in scenes, the introduction of certain characters, like. When Vale is strapped down on the bed as part of the experiment to determine how uh, strong a scanner he is by, you know, overwhelming him with people's thoughts, it's an interesting scene. And I, you know, I spent a, a bunch of time trying to figure out, okay, are they all scanners and that's what he's responding to? And then, no, it's just he can hear all of their thoughts and that's really harmful to him. But the sequence feels like it goes on for about five minutes. And I was just like... Okay, I get it. Why are we dragging this out? I'm not getting any new information. We're not changing anything. Like, there's just a bunch of sequences, even the infamous head explosion. This moderator's head goes boom. Revic is sitting right next to him. And then, like, we cut to him being arrested and dragged out of this auditorium. He doesn't have any blood or viscera on him. And when you see them take him away from the stage, yep. the body isn't even there. The body like, isn't
0: there and there's no blood on the desk. There's no indication that anything violent had happened
1: there. Mm hmm. Like it's it's not good filmmaking it's inconsistent it feels very fly by the seat of your pants Mm -hmm. which to
0: go back to the it's not the opening but almost the opening scene of of him being strapped to the bed and people are coming in i Mm -hmm. thought that it does a a good job in the initial point where like they're walking in and everyone is sort of like talking. And I thought people were just, it was like background noise, you know, it was just people coming in and having like that kind of crowd conversation that happens as people mill about Mm -hmm.
1: to get to their seats. Yeah. Until you realize no one's actually opening their mouths. Exactly. And I thought, Ooh, that's kind of cool that that's a really interesting visual, a
0: very subtle visual representation of what's going on. Mm -hmm. But then, yeah, it kind of goes on a little too excessively and, on, and on. <laughs> for a movie that doesn't
1: need padding in its runtime like no. that was the other thing yeah i i put this on thinking okay it's probably going to be about 90 minutes maybe 95 it it's not like it's you know two and a half hours no. or anything but it is longer and more drawn out than i would have expected particularly since some of the stuff just doesn't feel essential no
0: no, it doesn't feel essential, and I think the other problem I was having as I was watching this is I was like, I've seen this before because this is a, uh, this is the X Men.
1: Mm-hmm. Revic is
0: is Magneto, <laughs> like
1: <laughs> yeah, and even you know I in this denim geek piece they say you know it seems like Cronenberg was maybe influenced by some of Palma's recent films like The Fury and yep. Carrie and Carrie, mm-hmm. and I was trying to
0: think of when. Uh, Firestarter was written, because I know the movie didn't come out until late later in the 80s, but I can't remember when the book was written. Yeah, so Firestarter was released in September of 1980. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I would think that if you are riding on the, you know, the fly of your pants and just going as fast as you can, I mean, this this is kind of a movie to crib from, and it does feel as if it does feel like there is a connective tissue here. Mm-hmm. Shadowy organizations
1: and people with abilities to do different things. Right. And, you know, you you raised the point earlier that some of these are familiar Cronenberg motifs, right? Like mm-hmm. we've seen his obsession with scientists. We will continue to see that in some films to come. Right. And this idea that there's a, a bit of a conspiracy, like people with powers that we can't quite explain that have like intense physical damage uh to them it it all works in what he's interested in exploring so it's not it's not that this is completely derivative and i think you and i watching this for the first time in 2023 is also extremely challenging because Absolutely. we have seen other films do this kind of thing and and some of them are actually indebted to this movie because it is a cult classic it's got a couple of sequels a couple of sidequels spin-off kind of titles so it's not as though we're watching this and saying, oh, well, he's just cripping on everything. Like, sci-fi does this, right? Like, we we tease and pull from other texts and then other films and and books do the exact same thing. It's just, I don't know, Terry. This just doesn't feel right. essential enough for me. Like, when the film ended, I was like, what are we trying to do with this? What are we saying? What are we exploring? And it just feels like it's, a shadowy conspiracy like it it's a bit of a espionage movie with telepathy and that's fine maybe that's enough but for me looking at some of the other films that Cronenberg makes it just it doesn't stand out no it (laughs) it it does not and yes I I do want to I do want to
0: to kind of piggyback on what you're saying, yes, the problem is watching this in 2023 when you have a bunch of movies. Like, for instance, Joe Bagos's, uh The Mind's Eye is obviously mm-hmm. cribbing from this and Firestarter. There's a right. lot of movies in between these two that uh we have probably seen or that have riffed on various aspects of this. And so I think that when you start to like see that history before you saw the original. If you go back to that original, sometimes it can give you kind of like a, Oh, deflating type of moment because it's become a trope at this point, or it's become something we've seen all over the place. And so, I do think that that is an issue here. My I guess my problem is is that coming from The Brood, which I felt was a very deeply personal film,
1: mm-hmm.
0: even though there's like there's there's an almost clinical detachment to the some of the ways that that I find Cronenberg films things, yep. I would not call that movie detached at all. And we go from mm-hmm. that to this where it just feels like we're watching this unfold and we're keeping all of the interesting internal things at like arm's length. We're not really exploring what does it mean for this man to find out that, you know, he was given a drug as a, as a, fetus and has become like a powerful person and has this brother, like that's information that's dropped at the last moment. And then the movie is over. There's no mm-hmm. exploration of any of these internal conflicts that should have been bubbling throughout this entire film. And I think it's because he had to keep writing and like, well, what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next. And you're filming it. And so you don't get a time to go back and finesse any right. of those more interesting things that you might discover by the end of your first draft.
1: Hmm. Yeah. It's hard not to generalize because we have the ability to look at this in hindsight, right? But mm-hmm. jumping from The Brood, which is well received but it's still a very Canadian movie, it it doesn't do like fantastically well at the box office. It does fine, mm-hmm. but like then to jump to this which gets American distribution earns a bunch of money, becomes a cult classic, but it also doesn't tackle the sort of intimate, thematically heavy stuff that Cronenberg has been exploring in some of his earlier, more personal works. This feels like what happens when you step into the big leagues, you start to try to make more conventional studio slash genre fare. It's like, yeah, you got more money, but you also had to make a slightly more conventional movie. And the things that make your earlier work so fascinating and so compellingly you end up getting sanded off so that you can sell a movie to a mass market. Tales as old as time. You find an artist that you like, they hit it big
0: and all of a sudden the music starts to be sanded down to to hit those four corner marks of mm-hmm. of what people need to to sell music or to sell a movie. And yeah. I think that might be the case here in, in some way. I will say that this poster, this original poster of mm-hmm. Revik with the veins going up his arms uh, and his eyes white was an indelible image on my youth. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing this. This movie probably the most, besides maybe The Fly, in my VHS store and being like, what is this movie?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And when we finally get to that moment, you know, like... Oh, oh confess i'm more drawn to the sexual stuff the mm-hmm. the intimacy of like male female relationships and how that blurs when you get into body horror there's still body horror in this movie oh, but yeah. it does feel like it's driven more by the kind of espionage conspiracy angle and that's fine it's it's not my preference when i think of cronenberg but If you, if I can remove myself from my love of some of his other works, I do think a lot of this is fine. It's just that it's not scratching that itch. But then when we get to this finale, like this two-minute showstopper telepathic battle as they are, yeah, like raising veins and causing like warping and bleeding and eyes bursting and chest cavities leaking and stuff. Not only does it look fantastic because of the practical effects, but it is like hugely compelling to watch, even if we're still doing a like, oh, like I'm just staring at you really (laughs) intently. It It is very exciting as a climax to a film.
0: Absolutely. I was – I'm always impressed by what people are able to do with practical effects, particularly as we're getting into the, the start of this decade that would mm-hmm. be obsessed with trying to nail – the kind of goopy effects that this movie is starting to spearhead, right. but like that final scene where the veins are starting to enlarge through the through their faces and things, mm-hmm. I'm like, this is really well done. This is an incredibly yeah. crafted moment. It's so cool. His his imp- peeling his 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 oh, face yes. off of his hands. I'm like, okay, Poltergeist, oh. where are we taking that
1: from? <laughs> I loved that because yeah, at this point we've seen you know the kind of like ruptured arteries and raised veins and. It does look like honestly, I was kind of shocked that they were able to achieve it. I kept waiting for like a cut or something yes. so that we could we could fake it and like put an appliance on the actors' faces. And we're just watching it happen in real time. And I I was like, oh my God, movie magic, how are they making this happen? But then yeah, when he Oh, boy, when Vale starts to tear off his face in chunks, mm-hmm. Terry, I was in gore heaven. I was, too. I was like, finally,
0: we're, we're getting to the stuff that, like, I was I was excited to see. Because, like, again, all I knew about it was the head exploding and that image from the, the cover of the VHS. And I was like, mm-hmm. when are we getting to that point? And, I mean, kudos for saving that as sort of, like, the... We're sending you out into the from the audience into the into life, and that's probably the image that's gonna be stuck in your head now. Mm-hmm. Like, kudos for that. But it is incredibly infective. I just wish there were kind of more of that throughout.
1: Yeah. I I wonder if you wanna talk a little bit about one of the earlier sequences, because I I had seen still images of the giant art pieces oh, that my gosh. uh Vale goes to check out. So there's a an artist who sort of acts as a bit of a transition between the nefarious corporation that vale is hired and then they send him out to infiltrate this secret gang of scanners who are you know causing damage and so on and the go-between is this guy named benjamin pierce who we have seen this actor robert silverman in a couple of other cronenberg films most notably he was the guy who got outcast in the brood, right? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Also notable queer connection. He is, I believe, bisexual in real life because okay. he his Wikipedia page says that he married a woman and then they presumably divorced and now he has a male partner.
0: Oh, good for him.
1: Yeah. But I I love when Vale goes to his art studio and this guy, all of his work is basically him trying to address the mental effects of being a scanner and being overwhelmed all the time. So it's like bodies and minds and heads and stuff merging and like things leaking out of them. And it's quite evocative art.
0: This was my actual favorite part of the movie, to be perfectly honest that there's the, the sculpture with like, it's a man with these red strands leaving his head up into a cloud of, I think demons from what I remember Mm -hmm. sort of like, Floating up and above him, and I'm just like, this is incredibly. I mean, you said the word evocative. That's the. I think that's the perfect word to to describe it. But all of that that artwork, and then when he goes to his his place, and there's that giant head that has been turned into a room of sorts (laughs) under, like inside the neck behind Uh it. I was like, this is fantastic. This is this is the kind of production design that like I always, without knowing anything about Cronenberg, really was was attribute to Cronenberg the sort of just the the way it looks just is evocative of what Myself, not really knowing Cronenberg would would have thought a Cronenberg movie would have. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you know his reputation; it precedes him. Maybe if you're not as familiar with his work, and when you hear about it, you think of images like this. Mm-hmm. I
0: think of the the opening mall that is like retro, but mm-hmm. also modern at the same time, with a lot of red. Like I think of that, and then I think of this this weird ass art barn that has like <laughs> a giant head that's been fashioned into a bedroom like you do you right
1: yeah and then of course it ends up becoming a set piece because Uh. revix assassins have infiltrated this and uh i love that when Vale ends up using his powers like he's he's clearly not in control of them for most of the film because he's either tried to suppress them or he just doesn't know how to deal with them and here we see him cut loose and i love the image of one of the assassins literally just getting thrown through the air and crashing into this head and then he just steps around him and out into the open (laughs) it's it's kind of like a cool character
0: moment honestly Mm -hmm. but it's also again you know there's some interesting little thematic things there he's getting thrown into the head of the person that you know so it's like there's there's this idea of the mental inside and the head cracking open and so it, it works from a visual storytelling perspective but it's also just a really kind of cool character beat.
1: hmm Yeah, and even jumping back to the uh, mall sort of chase sequence that you mentioned, there's that great moment where Vale takes out some of his anger and frustration when he's an unhoused person who, you know, like, like he looks unclean and maybe you can tell there's some some issues or a critique of how rich people might look at a, a mentally unwell person in a mm-hmm. public space and he takes his revenge out on her and it's uncomfortable and disruptive but also sort of revenge porn like i was mm-hmm. like well bitch kind of asked for this and the mall sequence i thought was ah uh, like clearly we don't make malls like that anymore this film was shot in uh alternatively toronto as well as montreal the mall is in montreal and the red is so striking mm-hmm. but kind of like what you said about how the giant head is like a nice visual stand-in for what the film is trying to explore i love the idea of like a chase up escalators because oh. it you know, it, it has this idea of like up and down and. Like an Escher painting. Yes, thank you. I was like, I'm thinking of something smart, and I can't actually put it into words. <laughs> but yeah, the, this idea of... I think it's also a bit of a funny commentary on, like, sicking scanners on each other, right? Like, it's a no-win situation, and when you're bawling up and down escalators, it's like you're not actually making any ground up.
0: No, uh, exactly. But it is a really cool visual moment, particularly mm-hmm. when he's hanging on the outside of one, trying Ooh. to go up... And then you also have the added complication of being hit with a dart. And so you have like mm-hmm. a ticking time and you are just yeah. literally because their are escalators going in one or two directions and there's nowhere else for you to go.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed uh, some of the chase sequences. And then also, I think this is kind of the most bombastic we're going to see of Cronenberg in terms of like action sequences, because you mentioned earlier there's a car chase scene and we're also seeing people like getting lit on fire and people getting blasted with shotguns a lot in this movie
0: it's a it's a very appropriate 1981 movie because mm-hmm. there is a lot of i i love there's a there's a moment where a van pulls up and the windows open up with like oh, these yes. slats and shotguns are sticking out and they're being shot like it's it's very bombastic and that was the very first note very first note i took about this entire movie was bombastic opening music with stark green credits. And mm-hmm. I was thinking this is not what I'm used to for a Cronenberg film. It's right. very in your face. And uh, originally it was supposed to be even more in your face. Cause I guess from what I understand that iconic head exploding scene was supposed to be the opening moment and it turned oh. off preview audiences. And so <laughs> they moved it in 12 minutes <laughs> so that, it, hmm. so from what I understand that was supposed to be the opening moment. And talk about even more of a bombast. You go from this huge score by Howard Shore that is really good, Mm -hmm. but it's very much what I don't associate with the movies that we've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And then you, if you were to go straight into that head exploding scene, it's a lot, but it sort of is, is beckoning into a new decade of, of movie making.
1: Yeah. A new decade of movie making, and also the shift in Cronenberg's career. Like mm-hmm. we, we talked a little bit about how the brood feels like a baby step in that direction because we're recruiting big name Hollywood stars. Yep. And this one doesn't really have that. Like Michael Ironside, I I don't know how well-known he was at this time, but the movie feels like a more deliberate attempt to be commercially accessible to mainstream audiences. And while I think Cronenberg almost leans a little too far into that idea, we'll see a, a better balance of that Canadian sensibilities in terms of the subject matter, the thematics, and then the more audience savvy commercial casting and also subject matter as we move forward so this is like a fascinating bridge film even though i don't love it as much as i've loved some of the other stuff he does
0: and i was thinking as i was watching this because uh it feels very american
1: Mm -hmm. yes and it feels
0: as if a lot of the the canadian aspect that we've seen in his previous three movies has been kind of shaved off to make it seem more Americana as opposed to North American. Does that make sense? Like it doesn't – I didn't – I mean, I'm sure that if you lived in the places where this was filmed in Toronto or Montreal, you would note, oh, yeah, this is Canadian. But as someone – that is not from Canada. I'm like, this feels just like an American blockbuster.
1: Yeah. And one of the ways that you can tell is this film doesn't actually have a setting. So in some of other, yeah. so in some of Cronenberg's other films, they've specifically said that it's either Toronto or Montreal here. They're deliberately not saying, so you're right. There's, there's some iconic locations. If you know the cities or if you live there at the time, you would recognize them. But if you haven't or you don't then this just looks like sort of anywhere north america
0: yeah absolutely and i and there's like a moment later on where they're trying to get addresses and a lot of them are american places there's like washington and mm-hmm. there's you know there's a lot of of american cities that are being referenced in here and i think that's probably yep. because american
1: audiences want american storytelling <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah and canada has a history of doing that where sometimes we forget to change our money which of course is like different colors it's not like the uniform green like you folks have but you'll you'll see license plates and street signs like covered or just gently altered so that you can't actually tell oh this is set in canada because they want americans to think oh it's probably just set somewhere in the States.
0: Yeah. Okay. So one of the through lines in here that actually did sort of work for me Mm -hmm. is the focus on these scanners is not being human. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Because... We get kind of an interesting, and it's it's subtle, and I think that's probably again because the script is being written on the fly. But there are some <laughs> moments in here that that sort of speak to that because when we first are introduced to Vale, and he is looking like an unhoused person, and he is walking through stealing, you know, taking stuff out of the trash can and eating it, yep. he's being given looks by the the rich women that are sitting there and we get in her <laughs> mind and she says, or I think it's her, but I can't remember, but there's a line that has said, how do they let creatures like that in here? Yep. And referring to him as a creature is something that continues throughout this, because then later Dr. Ruth is talking about these creatures referring to scanners. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea that they are more powerful than humans and they have their mind unlocked by this drug and they were born human, but we are not can, them to humans we are looking at them mm-hmm. as less than or something that has to be quelled or exterminated like rats or like other you know nuisance creatures
1: yeah and yet so much of dr ruse experiments also seem to suggest that he's trying to make either a perfect weapon that concept can use or that this is kind of As you suggested, a bit of an X-Men parable, like it's the next stage of human evolution. And of course, we would be remiss not to address that uh, this is partially based on some real life experiments that were done. So the drug that they mention, ephemeral, is not a real drug, but uh, for the purposes of a real-life stand-in, it's referencing the drug thalidomide, which was used on pregnant women, and it did result in a bunch of, you know, sort of, I hesitate to say birth deformities, but it's like it, it did have a big effect on all of these test cases where it was snuck into pregnancies. Oh,
0: Wow. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. I was like getting images of like MK Ultra, which I don't think at this time Mm -hmm. was like out in the open. I think that was revealed later, but like it was happening Mm -hmm. from from like
1: the 50s into like the early 70s right yeah and and it's the exact same idea right this idea that shadowy companies are up to no good it's our slight fear of science in a kind of chemical warfare sort of way but like us as casual people could be on the front lines depending on if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or so on so yeah it's It is feeding into that kind of, I don't want to say Cold War paranoia, but very Mm. much this is appropriate for the time. Like 1981, where we were very uncertain about can you trust corporations and like certain types of chemicals and that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, and I also think that there's an interesting through line with the idea of this private company making Mm -hmm. biological weapons. Yes. But also... Um, the sort of ancestral way that companies are linked because we have, we have this, this ComSec for this entire, the entirety of this movie. And then we mm-hmm. get introduced later on to, um, just a rival company that's doing the exact same thing. That, of course, Dr. Ruth, uh, once owned. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so there's like this idea of moving starting a company, working on on bio things, and then moving on to form a different company. And that other company is still continuing on even without your knowledge. And so we we get these these companies that are meant to be a capitalistic creation thing, but they're embroiled in the art of destruction, in the art of making some new kind of weapon that some government can use to overthrow some other government. Sure.
1: And it, it directly anticipates the reveal that Revik and Vale are brothers. Yeah yeah maybe one final thing that we could talk about and let me know if you want to talk more about the music because obviously you mentioned it and i didn't really uh allow you to elaborate a bit more on howard shore's very different sounding score but i guess the the other memorable sequence in here is the sort of patently ridiculous sequence where Vale uses his scanning power on the phone line to destroy a computer (laughs) You know, it's hacking in the early days, right? It is. <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, I love the byproduct where we just see like all of these scientists and the, the evil corporate guy just go boom as the lab <laughs> explodes.
0: I, so I, and again, I think that, that this is sort of a, a byproduct of cronenberg having to write the script but i was like okay so all of a sudden now now they are nervous systems and now we're like Mm -hmm. trying to add more science in here and it's because he has the same nervous system as a computer Mm -hmm. that we can like interface with it and now we can do it because it's connected to the phone line so now he can do it from a phone booth which again i was given images of like the matrix would be pulling from this very similar idea of using phone Mm -hmm. booths to like access the uh, computer, I don't Matrix. I don't know the lingo, but <laughs> but like it's 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 an indelible image of him standing there with this with his like phone to his ear, listening in, thinking hard as like the computers are going wild. It's a it's a fun. A moment that doesn't make any sense, Joe.
1: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and honestly, keep this in the back of your mind as we make our way through Cronenberg's filmography, because you'll see this done better, in my opinion, in things like *Video Drum* and *Existence*. This idea of like an interconnected ability where you can poison one part of a system that isn't traditionally organic or connected to you, mm. and it can have massively destructive effects. Okay. Okay. And corporate espionage, of course. <laughs>
0: I mean, that's something that um, even his his son will
1: explore with Possessor. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brandon is definitely his father's son. He <laughs> he really is. <laughs> Okay, well, Terry, do you have anything else to say about scanners?
0: I mean, just like the only other things that kept popping up to me as I was as I was watching this is allusions that to other movies or other other things that other movies have cribbed on. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the big one and this is going to be a uh, big spoiler for The Empty Man. Have you seen The Empty Man? I have not, but it's fine. Go ahead. Okay, well, so if you don't want to have anything spoiled about The Empty Man, there is a moment where uh, just skip ahead a few seconds, but there is this moment Where Vale is talk, is confronting Dr. Ruth and he's finding out about. You know that he is his son, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: or, or there's that moment where um, I can't remember who said it. I, I think it was Revik said it. You were kept on ice. They thawed you out. You've been monitored yes. every day of your life. And this is literally the Empty Man. This is literally what oh. happens in the Empty Man. And so hmm. there's all these little illusions and all these little things that are that come off this movie that I'm like, oh, I can see this as being Matrix. The Matrix was influenced by this a few right. the, just a year later, um, and probably was filming around the same time. I would I would imagine, but this feels almost like a a blade runner like a blade runner yeah. movie, just like with that sort of noir aspect that's going on here with the kind of shadowy things that are happening and going after you know some person that is not doing things that are good and having to send someone after him that might be the same kind of person mm-hmm. like i don't know there's a lot of that stuff as i'm watching this and i'm like i can see where all of these movies are getting kind of the same ideas that that, right. that Cronenberg might be trying to explore here. It's just unfortunate to me that this movie isn't didn't have enough time to percolate into something bigger than I think that it it could have ultimately been.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I feel the same way. I think there's good bones here. There's Mm some really intriguing ideas. It just feels, yeah, like Cronenberg was riding on the fly and he didn't get to do the usual polish that we would expect of him. Like, we had money. We needed to film this. We needed to get it out. I'm not surprised that it ended up becoming a big hit because of things like the special effects and the timeliness of some of these themes, but it just doesn't have that same weight that I was hoping for. But, you know, when I was looking through the Wikipedia page on the film, just to get a sense of like, what has been influenced, what has been influenced by this or what its legacy is, it's intriguing that, yeah, not only do we have sequels and spinoffs and other things, but they have tried to remake or turn this into a TV show I think, no less than three times.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did see that. I The television attempt, Darren Lynn Bozeman was going to direct it at one point,
1: which no, would have been... thank you. <laughs> not great. It's no offense, but... <laughs> I mean, no offense, but Jesus, no, thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I was also kind of curious, because I, so I think I own a copy of Scanner Cop, because I believe that Vinegar Syndrome put it out, and yep. I did not realize that that was... In some way, tangentially related to uh, the Scanners. And I've... I, I mean, I can't imagine if you haven't seen the first one. You haven't seen any of the sequels, I'm assuming, right?
1: Mm-mm. No, yeah. this is my only take on this property.
0: Yeah, same. But I do think... I did kind of want to look to see if I did have Skyner Cough and break that open. Because I... It's its wild. I like this universe. And I mm-hmm. know that David Cronenberg has nothing to do with the other, the other movies whatsoever. Nope. But I like the universe that's being built. I just... Man, it's just a shame that he didn't have time to tinker with it.
1: Yeah. Uh so I I just did a quick search as you were elaborating on that and it does look like the latest attempt a TV show at HBO is maybe still going ahead because the oh. news article is from September of last year. So oh. Uh, we could still see a new take on this property, and it's apparently being developed by William Bridges, who has been involved with Black Mirror and Stranger Things. He's uh, the writer, executive producer, and showrunner. And then Jan Dimash from Lovecraft Country is going to direct and executive produce. Oh, well, that could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I I think you're absolutely right. Like, the fact that this, as a, a concept, like you know evil telepathy as you said firestarter immediately comes to mind mm-hmm. but there's there's a lot of juice in this idea and mm. i could definitely see it as a, a kind of limited series or even something where it's like yeah let's make this man a weapon and send him out
0: aren't they also doing a dead ringers tv show so is it is, is this like the new thing
1: to do uh by the time this episode drops dead ringer will already be out and yeah. yes uh so you know, Carnenberg as a TV property is definitely a thing. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So Terry, if people would like to chat with you about scanners or cop scanner. <laughs> <laughs> scanner cop? Scanner cop. Uh, how would they get in touch with you?
0: Uh, for as long as it, it's up, you will find me at Twitter, at Gaily Dreadful, um, Instagram as well. And uh, I don't post on TikTok, but I do look at hot men on it um what about you joe <laughs> people wanted to talk about some of the gnarly uh
1: practical effects in this movie where would they find you oh god yes please do Re- refer me to other ones of this ilk i could be reached at b still in my remote and that's the letter b and of course we'll thank the anatomy of a screen pod squad network for hosting the show so Terry, this is technically the end of our first season of Sexy and Surreal. We're going to take a bit of a breather so that we can get ahead in terms of recording. But um, I'm excited because when we come back, we're back on the David Lynch side of the podcast. And it's Twin Peaks time, baby. Oh, yeah. I'm excited for this one. (laughs) Particularly after coming from Blue Velvet, I am Very excited to visit this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll have to figure out exactly how we want to do this. If we're going to try to cover the season or maybe if you want to do some shorter episodes and we can do like an episode by episode thing. I don't know if we'll need to go into season two or maybe we can just kind of like casually address it. But I think it might be worthwhile to to think about covering at least season one of the show, which will take us into 1990 on the Lynch side, but it, uh, it, it's a good year for him because he also has Wild at Heart that year. Ooh. Okay, yeah. So, folks, uh, we'll take a little bit of a breather, and when we resume, we will be talking about season one in some capacity, either episode by episode or a season breakdown, Twin Peaks. That's my cue to stop the recording. The
0: Anatomy of the Scream Pod Squad.